All right. If you have a Bible, want to turn to Luke chapter 2, please. Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at verses um, 1 through 20. The message is entitled, The Punctual Birth of Jesus. Today we uh, celebrate probably the greatest event in human history that has ever been recorded. The birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet, there is a growing trend in our nation, um, not to mention the world, but our nation most of all, that um, kind of ignores this record. In fact, even says that you're kind of gullible and ignorant if you do believe it. And yet, when you examine the evidence of all this, it's overwhelming um, because... Man always prides himself in his intellect. And because he's fallen, he tweaks information. Our society is an amoral society. There's really no more ethics or morals to education, to uh, broadcasting, or many other things. It's subjective as whatever works. You know, the end justifies the means. And yet when a person examines the attestation, the evidence regarding the authenticity and reliability of the New Testament. There is more evidence for the New Testament than the classic Greek literature. Now, some of you are in universities and colleges. You study these things, and your professors never bring any question or doubt to them. And yet, if you compare the two... The Bible wins hands down. Um, A.T. Robertson, late scholar, uh, gives some incredible facts about the manuscript evidence that we have. Um, And remember that Luke is also going to give us that through the words he uses. We'll see that. But he says that there is more manuscript evidence um, in for the New Testament than the classical Greek literature. He says the following. We have 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate, 1,000 earlier versions, 4,000 Greek manuscripts, 13,000 portions. Most, if not all, of the New Testament can be reproduced just from the early church writers. Now, you realize the New Testament was written within that generation. Jesus died in 33, put it. John wrote last one in 95. So, I mean, you talk about close to the source in the number of things. Yet the classics, in contrast, are not so reliable. The seven plays of Sophocles that are recounted as authentic texts are manuscripts that are 1,400 years after his death. 1,400. The history of Thucydides. 488 to 400 B.C. are known to us by eight manuscripts, the earliest from 900 B.C., a difference of 400 years at the very least. The history of Herodotus, 488 to 400 B.C., no one doubts that record, yet the earliest manuscripts we have are 1,300 years after. So it's really intellectually dishonest if you look at the evidence of what is more reliable. The Bible wins 
hands down. Luke in his gospel, as you know, in chapter 1, he uses some key words. Um, he's writing to Theophilus, um, lover of God. And uh, he uses the word eyewitnesses, which we get our word autopsy from it. When you do an autopsy, you're inspecting, you're detailed, you're cutting open. There's, there's no mistake. You're revealing what's really there. And the word to know means uh, full knowledge. And so the intellectual people of our day would be more cautious for their own good when they examine these things, that they do it um, with honesty and that they do the study and not simply say, well, they're not reliable when they've never looked into the reliability of the scriptures. Again, the Bible is number one read book still to the present day, even though in our nation Christianity is declining and all over the world. It's still number one bestseller and best reader. reader. It's amazing to me. Uh, Paul said that God sent forth the son made of a woman under the law when the fullness of time had come right on time. God has never been late to anything, as I've told you, to redeem those who were under the law and to make us adopted sons and daughters. Luke, the physician, wanted his readers uh, to know the quality and the reliability of his gospel to be inerrant and infallible, the word of God. And he uses the introduction to verify this, as well as all the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, as we've seen. Here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 20, um, Luke presents the prophetic birth of Jesus Christ according to his timetable through three truths. Let me read here. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that um, all the world should be registered. Um, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went and registered everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out to the city of Nazareth unto Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And uh, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were uh, greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tithings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, uh, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem <clears throat> and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came uh, with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Now when they had seen him, they made 
uh, widely known the saints which had, was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard of it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. The prophetic birth of Christ, according to God's timetable, is based on three truths. First, the birth of the Savior was according to divine plan, verse 1 through 5, divine plan. Secondly, the birth of the Savior was according to divine purposes in verses 6 and 7. And thirdly, the birth of the Savior was according to divine proclamation, verse 8 through 20. It begins with the divine plan, the birth of the Savior, verse 1 through 5. Notice in verse 1, um, the time reference is given to us, and it came to pass in those days. Those days refers to the days of Herod, king of Judah, as you know. Um, he wasn't really a king, but he made himself a king. He kind of purchased it with uh, influence and money. He was um, uh, really a Nidamite. And Herod ruled from 37 B.C., and he died in 4 B.C. History shows that. Augustus was born in 63 B.C., began to reign in 27, and he died in 14 A.D. Um, the imperial decree, as you know, um, went out from him, Caesar Augustus. Um, he, was, he ruled as a, as a god. Um, many of the Caesars were. If you were a Christian, when the persecution came in, you were to um, pledge your allegiance to Rome always um, by burning a pinch of incense, and the Christians would not do that because uh, if, if they said Caesar was Lord, they would be betraying the Lord. So they would be persecuted and put to death. Um, Rome didn't care what you really believe, what you practice. As long as you gave that declaration at the beginning, then you can go do whatever you want. But you had to declare it. The Christians would not do that. Now, <clears throat> the imperial decree went out from Caesar Augustus, as we said. Uh, the decree, their dogma. Uh, it's the word that's used like dogma, of doctrine of, of, of any religious group, uh, what they believe. It's, 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 it's official. It, it, they will not let it go. It has to be obeyed. And um, it's a decree proclaimed from him. No one was exempt. It, it made no difference who you were. Um, it was during the time of peace also. For a decade, the Temple of Janus had been closed, uh, the god of war, and uh, it remained for 30 years forward. And so God sent the son during the time when there was peace throughout the empire of Rome where the gospel could go, the roads were prepared, and the one language that unified the kingdom and the empire was Greek. Right on time. Um, the freedom at hand um, was controlled by Augustus. Uh, and again, he ruled with an iron hand. And the one to be born is the Prince of Peace who would bring peace um, to earth and goodwill towards men. Um, this is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So his birth is very, very specific. The real name of Augustus um, Caesar was um, Caius Octavius and when he became the emperor. And the Roman Empire had been ruled by generals, as you know. And he began to rule as one man. And again, that led to Caesar worship. Uh, usually everything begins well, and then it kind of degenerates and moves into something that it really was never intended. Because men are thirsty for power and control, and that's just the way things go. Um, the vanity of Caesar Augustus was great, evident by the different um, um, titles that were offered to him by the Senate of Rome. They suggested dictator, but he said it was too temporary. Uh, they suggested a king, but he said it wasn't significant enough. 
And so they finally came up with Augustus from Augustus, like the gods, and that pleased him. Um, it's interesting. Today's philosophy in the New Age and even in many of the Christian circles is uh, the divine in you. You've got to work it out, you know. You've got to bring out the divine in you. What divine in us? <laughs> There's nothing but rotten stuff in us. <laughs> and that's all New Age language. Um, Today, they don't say, do you believe in Christ or this and that? So they say, are you spiritual? That's the new buzzword, right? And you could be spiritual. So, yeah, I'm spiritual, but you're, you're seeking demons and nothing wrong with that today. Uh, our whole society has been turned upside down. The entire world was to be registered, notice in verse 1, all the world is the entire Roman Empire. For the purpose was taxes. You know, governments have to function. They all began well, but then pretty soon they get greedy, right? And so there's always new ways to tax people and everything else. And certainly registrars were necessary to make sure no one gets away and they can get as much money as they can. Um, in verse 2 and 3, nor is the plan of God <clears throat> was to be fulfilled by this common tax uh, census. And so God uses practical means, things that we look upon the earth and we say, well, that's just a normal thing. <clears throat> but God has used it, the divine through the most natural the beginning of the um, census dated for us here took place by Quirinius. The Cyrenian was governor of Syria in verse 2. Um, critics tried to fault the scriptures, but archaeology uh, has found that this date to be true and, and the individual. And it's always like that um, when people try to fault the Bible and then God gets some archaeologists and goes find something and verifies what the scriptures are. Now, the word first here refers to the first time it was placed in operation of others that would follow. This being confirmed by archaeological evidence of the census every 14 years in Egypt. So again, the archaeological records that are found plus the scriptures verify what is being stated here. In verse 3, the decree required that everyone go to his own city. Now, the original residence... Um, had their original records there, and of course, that would be the family records, and again, they would be uh, held by each um, magistrate of the, of the cities and that, and, and they would be able to verify this. In verse 4 and 5, the people God was interested in, notice, was two people, Joseph and Mary. Uh, the Lord needed to get both of them down to the city of Bethlehem because that's where he had prophesied they were going to be at. Um, Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to him coming down. <clears throat> and they were presently in Nazareth in the lower Galilee. Some of you have been there with us. And um, um, it's not a short distance, probably 90 <clears throat> to 100 miles. Remember, she's pregnant. And um, they're going to be riding on a donkey all the way down there. Uh, Micah had prophesied about his birth in Bethlehem, Isaiah had prophesied 700 years before, Micah 5.2, Isaiah 7.14. Uh, and yet, um, God used the most common thing that was given by a so-called world leader to fulfill his prophecy in a way that we don't understand. And yet, God doesn't force somebody to do anything. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. He cannot learn anything. So he can declare things before they happen. So when they happen, you know he's God. Simple. 
Now, that bothers people. It shouldn't bother you at all. Thank God he can do that because he's flawless. Now, both Joseph and Mary were the line of David. Uh, Matthew gives us uh, one genealogy. Luke gives us another. One's an ascension. The one's a descension. One that goes through Coniah, and he was uh, ousted out of the, um, out of the genealogy. But uh, it goes through Solomon, uh, his brother, and then the, the other one through Solomon. So either way, it doesn't matter. Both of them were in the line of David. And since Joseph was not the real father, it doesn't make any difference. But they both had the right to the throne. Now, the journey to be registered was made um, when he was betrothed to Mary, notice his wife, with a child. Now, there was no procrastination. Uh, but obedience here by both of them, um, again, scheduled right on time. They were legally married, literally, having been betrothed. And Mary is called his wife, um, though Joseph, again, did not know her sexually until after the child was born. Matthew 1, 24 through 25 tells us that very clearly. Uh, remember the objection she said he was going to put her away privately until Gabriel talked to him, and then he uh, obeyed God. Now, the decrees of God deal with events and dates and prophecies that will come to pass while using people. But we have to be careful that we don't ascribe to God the evil that people might do in a prophecy. In other words, God declares the prophecy because he knows the end from the beginning, like I said. But God doesn't force a person to do the evil, nor does he force a person to do the good. God just knows the evil and good that people will do, and there's no problem for him to declare it. Because if God forces a person to do the good or the evil, how could God judge the person for the evil or reward the person for the good? God would be deceiving himself, and he wouldn't be good, he wouldn't be kind, he couldn't be holy. He'd be a liar and a deceiver, right? Simple. So it should... Not, shouldn't surprise us, it shouldn't shock us that God can do these things. Again, he's all-knowing. Um, now, Calvin has believed that everything happened by God's decrees, and nothing can happen apart from God's decrees. So in other words, he decreed it's going to happen no matter what. Well, that makes God the author of sin then, and of every evil thing, every rape, every murder, then God decreed it. That's not the God of my Bible. So... I realize that God doesn't violate man's free will, but he can tell the end from the beginning, but he doesn't force the person to do the evil or the good. It's real simple. Now, when it comes to God's divine plan, he is in control of world affairs, uh, not man. Even as Nebuchadnezzar, you remember Nebuchadnezzar, he was a hard nut to crack, but he finally cracked. In Daniel 4.35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Has God ever called you up for advice? I don't think so. He does as he wills, and yet he does it justly, perfectly. Often we think um, the man is in control of the world and situations instead of God. But... Um, that's a mistake. Uh, we're right on schedule right now. I don't like the schedule, but we're right on schedule. <laughs> and we've got a little window time in our nation, uh, maybe three years more, uh, possibly maybe seven. But it is a window time, ladies and gentlemen. And if you're a Christian, then you need to bulk up these next three years. And you need to walk with God. And you need to be sharing the gospel with Jesus Christ. 
um, because I do believe it's a window of time for America. God is always working in current world affairs and bringing about his plan, yet man is totally ignorant about it, such as when Babylon was used by God, as you know. And um, God said he was going to use Babylon, a more wicked nation, to chasten his own people. Habakkuk, the prophet, had a problem with that. Jeremiah prophesied about it. Habakkuk's read it. <clears throat> Habakkuk says, Lord, that's not right. You know, you're not telling me what you're going to do. He says, okay, I'm going to tell you. You're not going to believe it. I'm going to use Babylon to chasten my people. I can't believe it. I told you. <laughs> and as, as he did that, God was just because his people had turned his back on him. Judgment was deserved completely. But God was then working in the affairs of people. The head of gold, Babylon. The arms and shoulders of silver, Medo-Persia. The belly of brass, Greece. The legs of iron, Rome. The last empire, com combination of confederacy of ten nations, iron and clay, but iron and clay don't mix. The kingdom of the Antichrist. God's in control. He declares them before they happen. Yet he never forces anybody to do good or evil. So when he judges them, absolutely just, completely. In chapter 2 of Daniel, chapter 7, he gives you those kingdoms from the head of gold down to the feet. Chapter 7 gives you through the eyes of heaven as beasts, animals. We see them powerful, nations. God says, bunch of animals. Wow. The perspective is very important. One wonders at the world rulers today. Is God speaking to them, guiding and directing to do his thing? Absolutely. Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar. Right here we have another evidence. God's in control. God will often use people and circumstances to position us for his plan. So we need to be sensitive. Listening to the voice of God. That's why you're here to study the word of God. That's why you're here to listen to the voice of God. And Nehemiah, as he uh, was in captivity, as you know, uh, he heard some of the reports of the captivity and how Jerusalem was all burned down and everything else. And God began to work in his heart and God used him to go back to rebuild the walls. But he was sensitive and he was a cupbearer. He had to pray that God would prepare the heart of the king, right? God took care of it. So the birth of the Savior was according to divine plan. Always understand that. But it doesn't contradict the free will of man. Absolutely not. Notice, secondly, we come to verse 6 and 7. The birth of the Savior was according to divine purposes. The purpose of God's plan was that the Savior of the world be born. This is the focus. God allowed um, her time to deliver um, now. So it was that while they were there, not as they left Nazareth, not on the road to Bethlehem, but right on time. Now, you ladies know that when you were pregnant, when it's coming, it's coming. It doesn't make any difference. In the car, in the freeway, it doesn't matter. Um, God's in control. And God used a normal birth like any other. The days were completed for her to be delivered. Nine months in her womb, brought forth through the birth canal, cut the umbilical cord, had a placenta like anybody else. God gave that promise 4,000 years ago to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. The woman does not have seed. She has an egg. The man provides the seed, the first prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. 
God promised the birth through the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, Romans chapter 1, verse 3, many, many others. The two genealogies, Matthew and, and Luke, give you the genealogy of the line of David. God reminded Isaiah that a virgin would bear a son. They would call his name Emmanuel, God with us in Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew has picked it up in fulfillment of in Matthew 1, 23. The scripture fit like a glove. Perfect. Jesus is called the son of the highest, the holy one the Son of God, throughout the Gospels. This was no normal birth. Now notice the purpose of God's plan was brought about under difficult circumstances, verse 7. Sometimes we are naive, we think, well, now I'm a Christian, everything will just be pie in the sky, right? No, not really. <laughs> Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Mary, notice, brought forth her firstborn. In verse 7 there, the indication of firstborn is that um, he belonged to God. Um, the, the, the firstborn was a priest of the home in the Old Testament. Later on, God redeemed them through the Levitical priesthood. This has been interpreted at times as, um, as a text to indicate that Mary had other children. And because we can verify that she did, there's nothing wrong with using that. First meaning that she's a first, she's going to have a second or a third. In Matthew 13, 55 through 56, we get the names of his brothers and sisters by name. Of course, they are brothers and sisters' step, having the same mother, but not the same father. Very, very clear. And this is um, emphasized very clearly through the Gospels. Now, Mary wrapped him, notice, in verse 7, in throttling cloths. and the clothes was a square cloth. With a long bandage, they went diagonally around to wrap the baby and wrap him up real good. And the phrase is found twice in verse 7 and in verse 12. Mary laid him in a manger. Traditionally, the manger is a nice little wooden manger with nice yellow hay and all that, you know. And we have all this, you know. But remember, um, um, this most likely, as some of you were with us up in Megiddo when we went to Solomon's uh, uh, city there with all the horse stables and all that. And that... that uh, that manger is a, a stone trough where they would feed animals. And um, they'd put probably hay, but it was stone, not wooden. And um, Mary and Joseph were f found no room in the inn, remember. Um, today, there's still no room in people's hearts today. Uh, people don't mind being religious once a year. People don't mind hearing nice little stories. People don't mind being, you know nice once a year or whatever. But, you know, the message I'm giving you, we celebrate every day. For us as Christians, Christmas is every day. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. The inn was a guest room or a lodging place with a common courtyard enclosed with four walls. And there was um, water in the center. The animal, the cargo, the servants were accommodated. And... Um, this is where Mary gave birth to Jesus. Not a very nice place. Now, who is he? He's the son of God, God himself. Uh, where would you have picked to have your son born if you were God? <laughs> why? We'll see some of the reasons why as we move along. God in all his love did this for us. When God allowed Joseph to be sold to his brethren, you remember, to Egypt, it, he says in chapter 50 that they meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. 
As you and I walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't know how long you've been walking with God, but you know that Christian life is not pie in the sky, and there's difficulties, there's problems, there's situations, there's decisions you have to make. Um, sometimes God allows certain things to come to our lives. Sometimes other people force it upon our lives. Sometimes we're stupid enough and bring things into our own life. But we have the throne of grace to go to that God would give us the grace and strength and wisdom to work through those things. And sometimes we just have to, even though he forgives us and he takes care of us, but we have to live with those consequences. So we should do it honorably without blaming others uh, when we bring it upon ourselves. But God is faithful all the time. He'll be faithful to the level that I allow him to be faithful, to trust him for that. Very important. The purpose of God to have his son born of the most common and poorest of person was that no one would ever be able to accuse God of saying, you do not understand what it is to be poor. When he was going to give a parable for taxes, he said, anybody have a coin? <laughs> when one wanted to follow him uh, in the discipleship, he says, uh, uh, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Amazing. The scriptures tell us that Jesus became poor for us that we might be rich in him, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. The intent of God was that no person would accuse him of not being able to approach him. God wanted every person to be able to approach him. He emptied himself of his glory and never of his deity, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. So he opens the doors wide for every person to be able to approach him. Do you understand the only identity that God gives you for you to line up with? It's one of two. Male and female. That's it. Not your race. Not your color. Not your family line. Not your nationality. Male and female. Now, you can identify yourself by the equipment you have. Okay? There's no mistake about it. Male and female. That's it. And then he groups them together and he calls them sinners. There's the common ground. Our only distinction is male and female. Our common ground is we're rotten sinners. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79. People don't like that. You may not like it right now when you hear it. But that's what God says. So you either agree with God or you disagree with God. But then there's the consequences on both ends. Yet God doesn't force you to believe or agree with him. He's a perfect gentleman. He gives you the illumination to understand, to evaluate, and to make a decision. And he'll honor your decision as much as Pharaoh. Pharaoh Harden his heart, harden his heart, harden his heart. He got to a place where God says, now God hardened the heart of Pharaoh's. The harder you get, the harder it is to believe. And there's a line where people cross and God says, I give you over to yourself. I respect your choice. You want to go to hell? I'll let you go. Wow. Not one person in hell will ever be able to say to God, you never gave me a chance. Not one. The purpose of God is to provide every person born into this world at least one opportunity. Because many people, you know that question everybody asks. Well, how about the pygmy? How about the bush? How about this? How about that? How about you? I'm telling you about the gospel. 
but God will give every person at least one chance. Where do you find that? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the world's the world. That means that every person born into this world must have at least one chance. If they don't, then God's a liar. Because how could God judge them if they didn't have a chance? How? I can't tell you. When? I can't tell you. Where? I can't tell you. But I can tell you that they will have one opportunity before they die. Well, God cannot be good. He cannot be just. He cannot be holy. Not at all. Hmm. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but long suffering towards us, not willing that anyone should perish. Second Peter three nine. God's heart breaks when people perish. Every time a person gives up his breath. My mom is at the brink of at the end right now. Fat her in a home. She's had dementia and Alzheimer's and uh, Lord could take her home this month. Could be in a couple of weeks, whatever that I don't know. But the minute she gives up her last breath, she'll be instantly present before the Lord. But if she didn't know the Lord, she would be separated from God. We should never say that with um, any joy. It's with a broken heart. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. The purpose of God in salvation is not always easy. At times, there are difficult situations, circumstances. But the purposes of God are always in them. Um, that we might trust him. That we might look to him. Um, the scripture says that, Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken him except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will show you the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. I hate that verse. And I love that verse. I hate it because when I don't make use of that, I fail. I love it because no matter where I'm at, if I yield my head, myself to God, he'll take care of it. He will be sufficient. So really the ball's on my court. If I turn to him, I'll pass the test. If I don't turn to him, I will fail. Absolutely. And so the birth of the Savior was according to divine purposes. Third, the birth of the Savior was according to divine proclamation. Verse 8 through 20. Notice in 8 and 9, the divine proclamation was to lowly shepherds. The setting is given by Luke here in verse 8. Now, if you're, you, you're God, you're going to have your son born. Would you proclaim it to kings or to emperors or shepherds? The location is near Bethlehem. Now, they were in the same country, and the word country means the region, the surrounding area. The activity of the shepherds as they're living out in the fields, keeping the flocks watch by night. Wolves and different things and people who would steal. Uh, the shepherds are living with them. And, but the shepherds had kind of a bad reputation during those times. Once again, he makes known to them. God condescends. He comes down. He becomes a man. He includes everybody, not just the wealthy, not just the intellectuals, not just whoever, but the whole world. Some have speculated perhaps these shepherds were keeping the temple sheep. Could be. We're not sure. And they were there to protect them. 
once again. Jesus uses this illustration many times, and so do the prophets in the Old Testament, the sheep and the shepherd. And the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, the hireling flees. Look at verse 9. The description of what took place is also given to us by Luke. First, he tells us who appeared to the shepherds. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. Angels uh, appear in human forms often. We just started a new series, What About? And we just looked at angels a couple of weeks back. They're interesting uh, spirit beings, different categories. Um, We've seen Gabriel also come to Mary and to Joseph. Good news. Gabriel's good news. Michael, uh, he is the warrior of Israel. And the second thing he tells us is what the shepherds saw. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Glory. Glory here means doxa, means splendor, brightness, magnificence. You can only imagine. Now, they had a little phenomenon the other night. I think Friday up in the sky. Everybody freaked out. They thought it was E.T. or something. Um, um, it, it is interesting when people aren't Christians and they start, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> Amazing to me. You can imagine the brilliance of, of, of all these angels. You know, just amazing thing. It is associated with the Lord, Kurios, indicating Yahweh or God. God became man. Thirdly, he tells us how the shepherds responded. And they were greatly afraid. Phobia. We get our word fear. Phobias, okay? Same word. Exactly. They were terrified as you and I would be if we're shepherds out in the field. And this comes upon us. Look at verse 10 and 11. The divine proclamation was one of redemption, listen, for lost sinners. The angel declared the nature of the message. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Notice it keeps being repeated, all people, all people. Good news. Literally, stop being afraid. Perhaps they thought it was God's judgment. Who knows? Israel had a long history of that. He brought good tithings of great joy. Behold, it's an imperative command. Pay attention. What was going to be said here was very, very important. Good tithing, we get the word um, evangelism from it. Um, uh, This was the greatest news that man was ever going to receive. All that the Old Testament had prophesied about, the person, the time, and the place, it was here. It was now. The gates of heaven would be opened through the Messiah after he rose from the dead. The imparting of the good news was very meaningful, will be to all people. There it is again. The Greek has the article, the people of God, including now, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus, Ephesians. No difference. Bond, free, Scythian, barbarian, male, female, Jew, doesn't matter. One in Christ Jesus. Now, to give you an idea, you know what the Scythians were, right? They were the northern tribes out there by by Crimea, by by Russia and that. They would take their captives, decapitate them, skin their skulls, and use their skull as drinking vessels. So if you think you've gone too far... Have you, have you decapitated somebody, boiled their skin off and drank out of their skull? If they can be saved, so can you. Because it comes through repentance, seeing your wretchedness before God. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. 
There is no pit that God is deeper yet to bring you out of it by His grace. If you see yourself as God allows you to be seen for the first time, separated from God, dead in trespasses and sins, and you cry unto Him, He will be there. Absolutely. The angels notice declared the fulfillment of God's promise of a redeemer in verse 11. That very day a special baby had been born. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. But not one like the Old Testament judges that just were sent to deliver them from just the consequence of their sin. But this Savior would be one to deliver from sin and death. He would rise from the dead. He would destroy him who had the power of death. He would taste death for every man. He would incur the, uh, the pouring out of God's wrath, his father upon himself for us. Wow. The title Savior appears only two times in Luke. Mary declared God her Savior, but this is the only one directly referred to Jesus. We have Luke one forty seven and 2.11 here. Now the title Savior of the World, it's interesting. Um, where was it given to Jesus? It was given in Samaria by the woman of Samaria. Of all places where he gets his title, the Savior of the World. Not by the Jews, but by Samaritan. Half Gentile, half Jew. How interesting. Notice the identity of this Savior was given who is Christ the Lord. So there's a connecting identity with him. Christ is Christos. It means uh, Messiah, um, the Hebrew translation. Lord, master, owner, possessor of mankind. He created us and he wants to redeem us. See, you can't, you, you don't, God didn't buy us. He redeemed us because he originally created us. Now, I don't know, maybe when you're in the world, you pawn something, okay? You pawn a, a, a watch or a stereo or whatever. And, and they gave you a set amount of time to redeem it. You could redeem it within a certain period of time because it belonged to you. When you go back, you're not buying it, you're redeeming it. Once you go over that date, now anybody else can buy it. Only you can redeem it. Only God can redeem us because he created us. We belong to him, but we've gone astray. But he's given a provision by which he can redeem us, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. You remember Isaiah's prayer, all that God would rent the heavens and come down, Isaiah 64.1. God says to Isaiah, 700 years I'll be there. I'll answer your prayer. <laughs> he came down. Look at 12 through 16. The divine proclamation was to be responded to by the shepherds. It's nice to hear about things like this, but there's a personal accountability. You can't just walk away with a nice story. You, you're, you're accountable now. The angel described the condition of the child. Verse 12. The sign was on earth, and this will be the sign to you. The child will be found in a particular manner. The babe will be wrapped in swaddling cloth. Lying in a manger. The swaddling cloth again, that square with diagonal strip. The baby would be in that manger, the feeding trough. Very specific so that when they saw the child, 
they know it was God who declared to them by verifying the specifics. In verse 13 and 14, notice the angel declared the contagious worship of God. The sign was in heaven, and suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. This is pure worship from heaven, unfallen angels, angels that dwell with God, angels that do the bidding of God, angels who know all about God, angels who have seen the rebellion in heaven by Satan, angels who look down upon the earth and see the dumb things we do and they can't understand why we do what we do. They stoop down and they look at it and they go, I can't believe that guy. Amazing. An innumerable army of angels giving praise and glory to God for the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior. Notice in 14, still the benefit was for the earth and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The peace was of the forgiveness of sins. Through faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Uh, the Roman um, Pax Romana was a temporary peace for a short time until the next war. The peace that we make with God is when we repent and we agree with him that we're sinners and fall short and we trust God through the person of Jesus Christ who is also God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And then we make peace with God. He justifies us before God. So now my sins are forgiven. So I have made peace with God. I'm no longer an enemy against him. I'm no longer challenging him. I'm no longer questioning him all the time as an enemy. He's no longer um, against me from the point that he's holy and I'm sinful. But we're one by the propitious work of Jesus Christ. The goodwill means the good pleasure of God towards sinful humanity that would repent in faith through hearing the gospel message. You stop and think about it with all the technology, everything that goes on. God uses the most simplest way to save people by proclamation. The preaching of the gospel. Paul says that people call it the preaching of foolishness, but it isn't the preaching of foolishness. But they say it's foolishness of preaching they think that's foolish to do it that way. But there is the good news. There is the wealth that God has given to mankind. The good news that Jesus Christ was born, died, and rose from the dead. Amazing. Notice the angel's departure followed the shepherd's search for the Messiah. See, if you really believe it, then you're going to search it out. Don't just believe me. What I'm saying to you, you can search it out. You have a whole book. You have a history. Search it out. God doesn't mind you searching out things. Check it out. They obeyed the message immediately. Listen. So it was when the angels had gone away from them to heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass. So they knew it was divine visitation, which the Lord God had made known to us. You know when God speaks to you. I know when God speaks to me. And you, if you're here as a non-believer over the radio or, or over the internet, you know when God speaks to you. And you will be held accountable when God spoke to you, whether you responded positively or negatively, to accept Him or reject Him. That's between you and Him. He's Jewish. 
He keeps good books. The confirmation of God's word was witnessed by the shepherds. Listen, to be true. First, they saw a man and a woman there. They came in haste and they found Mary and Joseph. Next, they saw the Savior, a baby lying in a manger. The angels identified him. Then look at verse 17 through 20. You have the divine proclamation was to be shared with others. So if you hear the proclamation and you embrace it and you give your life to Christ, you, you will not be silent. You cannot be silent. Because you know that every time a person gives his last breath, they will perish without Christ. Now, you don't believe that you're the one that saves people. We don't save anybody, but we are God's instruments to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at 17. They believed in the Savior. They were first partakers seeing Jesus through and in faith by a personal relationship. Now, when they had seen him, they could not keep the good news to themselves. They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. The people hearing the gospel news contemplated the gospel message. You ponder it. You realize the wealth, the preciousness that you have, the privilege you have. And all of those who heard and marvel at those things which were told them. They wondered about the messengers by the shepherds. A little different. These aren't magistrates. These aren't kings. These aren't Roman emperors. These aren't the Jewish priests. Shepherds. Hmm. The mother of Jesus, notice in verse 19, thought on all that had been taken place. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is also made known when she dedicated Jesus at the temple a sword would pierce her heart. For Jesus came for the rise and the fall of many. Gabriel visited her. Now the shepherds send this message. She ponders it. 14, 15, 16 years old. Wow. Look at 20. The shepherds were turned into different men. They worship God. As the Savior, the shepherds return glorified, praising God. This is the transition. This is the transformation. This is the, 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 the point of decision that every person makes, every generation they have made it. Some people reject Christ. Others will accept Christ. Other people die. They enter eternity with God. Others separated from God. But the choice is individual, ladies and gentlemen. This morning, God does not force you to go to heaven. But he sure would like you to go to heaven. And he offers to you the salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. The proclamation of the Old Testament, the New Testament, is that Jesus came the first time. There's such, so much evidence historically, archaeologically, and scripturally. And yet people don't believe it. And if he came the first time and God was true to his word, what would make you believe that he's not coming a second time? But the next time is to judge the world. The first to save the world. 
The second is to judge the world. Wow. God revealed the good news, salvation to the most common of all people, shepherds. Again, not the king, religious people or anything like that. The first beatitude, remember, since we started Matthew, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first beatitude, the foundation to all others. Uh, The statement means that you see yourself as bankrupt, uh, having nothing to offer God for him to accept you as his son or daughter, but you're trusting totally the atoning work of Jesus Christ to be justified before God, casting yourself upon him, agreeing that I deserve death. He tasted death for me. I deserve that judgment. He took that judgment for me. And I trust what he did for me, that which I cannot do for myself. This is the foundation to everything else a Christian. Poverty of spirit. The good tithings of Christ must be responded to personally. This is the only way sinful man can obtain peace with God on earth. God does not save through family packages. He saves one and the rest are all saved. No, individually. Now there will, there will be, I'm sure, whole families in heaven that accept the Lord, but not because one accepted and the other ones just took an easy ride. Each person has to make that decision. Sometimes a husband is born again. Sometimes a wife is not born again. Sometimes the reverse. Sometimes both are not born again. Sometimes both are born again. Sometimes godly people have children of the devil and the children will not be in heaven. Sometimes parents of the devil have godly children because they've accepted the Lord. It's an individual choice, ladies and gentlemen. An individual choice. The message never changes. I've been declaring this message since 1973. If you've left for any amount of time, you come back, you'll find me doing the very same thing, even in the dark in the first service. (laughs) Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only good news. The only good news. And so we have peace with God justified, Romans 5.1, when we agree with God who we are and we ask forgiveness. And it's, then we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. For the situations of life, once you're a Christian, now you get in difficult times. Things come upon you. Sometimes, again, God allows them. Sometimes God brings them. Sometimes God permits them. Sometimes we bring them on ourselves. But God is there, our access to go before the throne of grace, to ask him for mercy, to ask him for grace, to ask him for wisdom, ask him for strength, and to trust and abide in him. That's the benefit. The good news is impossible to be contained. Impossible. It must be shared with others. If I can be born again, accept Christ's grace in my life, and go on my way and never share with others that God opens a door, then either I'm not born again or I'm awfully, awfully selfish. One of the two. Impossible. Jeremiah said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Is God's word burning your heart, Christian? To hunger and to thirst and to study and to meditate, to share, to examine the scriptures. 
to be looking at the world scene and seeing where we're at. Lord, how soon are you coming? What's going on? What can I do? Wow. You and I are God's ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We represent heaven. You are the closest thing to the gospel that some people will ever see. And so you have to live Christ-like so that when God opens those doors, you can share Christ. First by your life and by your words. Very important. And so the birth of the Savior was according to divine proclamation. It has never changed. It has never changed. Luke has presented the prophetic birth of Jesus Christ here, the Savior of the world, according to God's timetable, right on time. Evident of the birth of the Savior was according to divine plan. Do you see it? Do you see the, uh, the perfect fit of the scriptures? No contradiction. The fulfillment of it. The birth of the Savior was according to divine purposes. Do you understand it? The fact of man's fallenness and his ability to be forgiven, to be made new, to be a child of God by grace. The birth of the Savior was according to divine proclamation. Have you responded to it? Bottom line. Hearing about it's nice. Hearing about the benefits is great. But they do not affect you unless you say, Lord, I agree that I'm a lost sinner. and need a salvation and forgiveness of my sins. Would you save me? Would you forgive me? This is what God desires to do for you. Father, thank you for your grace, your loving goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that makes it all alive and possible, Lord. I pray for every person here over the internet, the radio, Lord, somewhere in the world, whoever is listening, that you would make yourself known to them, Lord, their need of you, that they call upon your name, that you would forgive them and save them, Lord, and use them for your glory. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're out there in the world somewhere or on the Internet. This is your prayer of repentance if you believe what you have heard me say, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And it comes through repentance, agreeing with God that you cannot merit heaven. You must accept what God through his Son has done for you. If this is your desire, this is your prayer of repentance. Real simple. Straightforward. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.